Welcome back to the Music History Podcast. Today we have the stories behind the songs, part two. As an added gem today, we're going to learn about the 80s hit that was written on the toilet. So now that you're on the edge of your seats, let's proceed. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Music History Project. I'm really, really happy about being together for this sort of part two of our podcast a few weeks ago, which are the stories behind the songs as told by the songwriters. And today we have so many more good stories. We just thought, let's continue this great theme. So welcome, you guys. Thank you. Good to be back. Thanks. It's been a long time. (laughs) So tell us, what's the first one we're going to listen to today? So we're going to get started with Jason Mraz. Jason Mraz, by the way, was uh, born in Virginia in 1977. To give you a little perspective of his career, his uh, first album came out in 2002. um, And to great delight, you know, it sort of uh, got America by storm almost, if I could say it like that, waiting for my rocket to come. And what followed were these great little tidbits into his spirit and into the way music developed in his life. I mean, he was all about music theory as a young kid. He really wanted to get into different instrumentation. He really spent a lot of time massaging the words of his songs. And I think it really shows. And as a result, he had uh, won a couple of Grammys for albums like Make It Mine and Lucky. And of course, his biggest hit and the thing that we hear all the time in the supermarket, I'm Yours, which came out in 2008 on his third album. We sing, we dance, and we steal things. So you uh, really interesting guy. And I really looking forward to seeing what's next in his career. In my early, earliest catalog, that would be my, I would say, my like Java Joe's recordings or my live and acoustic recordings. There's a few songs, a song called Running, a song called Zero Percent Interest, and another one called Childlike Wildlife, which I don't even know if it exists on the recordings, but those sang of a 19, 20, 21 year old kid who was experimenting in um, controlled substances, um, experimenting in new thought and kind of running away, dropping out of school. Um, This sort of uh, risky ambitiousness. Um, And I was hiding all of these types of things in those songs. Um, I was going to nightclubs. Um, I was uh, you know, just, I was basically, I was quitting school and I was so afraid to tell my parents. In fact, I didn't tell them that I quit school for a while. Um, but that type of rebelliousness, um, I never wanted to let that go. Even as I became a more responsible adult, there's still that kid inside of me who wants to just continue to rebel and and um, 
and and be a kid forever in a, in a way you know um, being an adult has comes with so many responsibilities you know but this music gives us this opportunity to, to break out of our sort of human and even um, political or geographical boundaries that we're given wherever we live and music allows us to just get so cosmic and young and or timeless so my early songs whenever I tap into those songs all of that comes flooding back to me and I love that um, in in recent years um, I would say there's a song called um, I mean, I have a song called 93 Million Miles, and that might be a good representation of who I am today. I, I wrote it maybe 10 years ago, but it's still something that I'll play in my show every night that always brings me back to a really centered place. And the lyric is that there's, we're 93 million miles from the sun, which is super which is far out if we were any closer to it we'd probably all burn up if we were any further away from it we'd probably freeze to death so it's this just this miracle that we even exist and the sun sets every night but you know we know if we if we just hang on we know it's going to rise again and warm our hearts again and and the song is about being out there, like I left my family in Virginia, I left my home of Virginia and moved to California, so I, I feel like I'm out still orbiting the planet or something, pursuing this musical dream. And my parents always gave me permission to come home, always. They said, no matter what you do, you can always come home. And I think that also gave me the strength to pursue a career in music, because if I failed, I knew I could always go home and get a hot bowl of soup from my mom, you know? Um, so the song is a tribute to my parents in the advice they gave me and then if I do it right I'll love wherever I am and home will always be wherever I hang my hat or wherever my heart sits it's not necessarily Virginia it's not necessarily California um, it's not ever gonna look a certain way it's just gonna be about peace peace in your heart and I think from my recklessness of my youth to even who I am today, it's, it's always been about that. It's about, I want to go somewhere where I can have peace in my heart and happiness in my pursuits. So I really hope you enjoyed his segment. Um, he was so articulate and poetic, really. It was really fun to do this interview. And then I have a little personal story to tell. Um, after he concluded his interview, we did it here in the office, and he had a water bottle that he emptied during the interview, and I knew he had a bit of a drive to go home, so I asked him if he wanted to refill his water before he left, and he kind of looked happy that I thought of something like that. So we walked him to the lunchroom on the way out, and it's one of those old water coolers with the bottle, and so um, I held the little spigot, and he unscrewed the thing and held it under, and then on an impulse, I just said, what's it gonna take? And then he said, Teamwork. <laughs> so that was a very special moment. And um, well, I, I just like a disclaimer, that wasn't actually Jason Mraz no, joining me. me. That was Dan. But 
I'm sure he thinks of it on a daily basis and has this fond memory of singing with Suzanne at NAM. <laughs> Great story. And I really love that um, 93 million miles from the sun story. I mean, really, what an encouraging thing. His parents just basically saying, I have a bowl of soup here, so go run your dream. You know, go out there, do what you need to do for your music career, but realize you can take risks because if all else fails, you can always come back home. I think that's a really, really neat thing um, and, and good for his parents to be encouraging like that. Yeah, kind of unique. Really nice that they were so supportive of his career. The next interview we're going to play is uh, with Valerie Day and John Smith. It's a husband and wife team. The band's called New Shoes, and the song is I Can't Wait. This was a hit in 1985, and... Um I think surprising to both of them, it was actually a bigger hit on the R&B charts than it was on the pop charts. And uh, I just love the story behind it because they're often asked, okay, how do I make it in the music industry? And they're like, okay, sit down. Let me tell you the story about how it took us forever to get this song out. So I think this is a very unusual but very interesting story about I Can't Wait. Can you? No, I can't. Here it is. The hit record that I Can't Wait became, um, so many people are responsible for that happening. One of the people responsible for that happening was an engineer that worked on the record on that five-song EP. His name was Fritz Richmond. There's such a rich history around that guy who uh, really took a look at this record, I Can't Wait, that we brought in and said... Um, do you want this to be a single? And we were like, we were like what's, what's a, a single? Because <laughs> we didn't know, you know. It yeah. was kind of the... Three minutes and 30 seconds? That's so short. We play songs that are, you know, nine minutes long. Yeah, it's just like a stoner <laughs> thing, you know. You want to hear that thing go over, over and over. over. Um, and so he got us to cut choruses in half. And he um, did dub mixes where he would just drop down to just the bass or something. It was, that was new back then too. Yeah. And we had no idea what his background was. That was the other wonderful thing about this guy. He mm -hmm. never, ever name dropped. We didn't know he was connected to all these people and that he had so much rich experience in the recording studio in, you know, when he was in on the East coast. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he, so he made, I can't wait radio ready, I would say. And then, um, and then this whole chain of events happened that's quite miraculous. And I still can't believe it when I tell the story. Because people often say, how do I get a record deal? Well, first of all, <laughs> make a five-song cassette EP and then have a local music writer write about it. So this local music writer, Attilio, wrote about our, our record and said, um, too, too bad local radio doesn't play it because it's, it's a good record. And uh, that story got in the hands of Gary Bryant, who was the um, over at Z100 in those days. He was the morning zoo guy. And he, he read the article over the air and said, if New Shoes is listening, come on down. Our manager at the time was a morning person. And he jumped on his Vespa, took the cassette down to the station. They picked I Can't Wait off of it. And almost immediately the phones lit up. People loved the song from the beginning. And um, from there, 
some friends at Warner Brothers helped us to get it like all in all the P1 and P2 stations around the Pacific Northwest. And we tried to get a record deal and we got turned down by every major label because they said it was a Northwest phenomenon. Regional hit. Yeah, regional hit. Not We don't need them. She sounds like Madonna. We already got Madonna. So we are, you know, depressed and nothing's happening with this record and we've pushed it as hard as we can. When a DJ subscription record company got in touch with us and said, can we put I Can't Wait on this DJ subscription record? We said, sure. Copy made it over to Holland. Injection Records found it there, hired Peter Slothouse to do a remix of it. That dance remix got imported into New York. The New York dance clubs, Larry LeVan started playing it at Paradise Garage, like a lot. And then Atlanta Records had just hired this guy named Bruce Carbone, and he went over, you know, was checking out all the dance clubs in New York, and he kept hearing the song, and that's how we got signed. So when we first came to New York, after all this had happened, people were like, uh, do you speak English? Because they thought we were Dutch. You know, it was hilarious. Anyway, so that's that's how the song actually, how, that's how we ended up getting signed. That's how you get a record deal. Yeah. yeah. If you that's can just you get, do that. If you can just do that. <laughs> that's it. There it is. It's so simple. What a crazy story how the song came about. <laughs> no doubt. Valerie Day sings in jazz big bands now. Isn't that amazing? I mean, she's still continuing her passion for music. I love that. And speaking for her passion to music, here's a, a great story behind the hit Traveling Man, which was a big, big hit for Ricky Nelson, as many of you may know, written by a guy named Jerry Fuller, who was born in Fort Worth in 1938, I believe. And what a really great story this is. It's sort of a simple way of writing a song, but I love how it finally got to the hands of Ricky Nelson, who had a huge career uh, with a lot of big hits in the late 1950s and early 60s. Of course, introduced to the world as the son on Ozzie and Harriet, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, Her, his dad being Ozzie Nelson, the big band leader, and his mom, the vocalist Harriet Nelson, and uh, his older brother Dave. I mean, it was just a fun little family show. I think it was actually, for the longest time, the longest running television program um, for many, many years. And when he became a teenager, Ricky was sort of a, an idol, uh, you know, the screaming girls and all of that. So they ended many of their television shows with Ricky singing a pop song, and many of which, of course, became big hits for him, including Traveling Man. My favorite part about this story is the fact that um, Jerry went on to a huge career as a producer. In fact, um, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap fans can thank Jerry Fuller for their great success, among many other performers. So let's hear from Jerry Fuller and the story behind Traveling Man. My first hit, uh, Glenn and I went in and made a demo on Traveling Man that I wrote, which I, I wrote in a, in a park in, in Hollywood. And I had a World Atlas in my car. I was waiting for my wife to get off work. And I would pick her up, and so I'd, I'd go to this park and write. And I didn't play guitar. Like I said, I just beat on the dashboard. And and uh, I knew what chord was in my mind and the melody and everything. And I wrote Traveling Man in about 20 minutes. So Glenn and I went to the studio, and he played guitar, and I sang. I wrote it for Sam Cooke. So I, d I did the uh, Pretty Polynesian Baby. Whoa, 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 and put all the little Sam 
Sam Cooke like sitting. And obviously, uh, somehow it got in. Uh, I, well, actually, I know how it got in. Uh, the the demo was I took it up to to see Sam's manager, and uh, he said, "Yeah, I'll listen to it. You know, I'll call you later if I like it or whatever." And he obviously did play it because Joe Osborne uh, was Ricky's bass player, was in the in the ne- right next door was Ricky's label, and uh, he heard it through the wall. He was there get, picking up his, his retainer check, you know, that Ricky played him. But he went next door and he asked Sam's manager, he said, uh, said, J.W., uh, can you play a traveling song again? And he said, here, you can have it, and he reached in the trash, and he gave it to Joe, and then Joe took, uh, took it and put it in Ricky's pile and they, and they recorded the song. And that, bam, that, that, that's what got it all started for me. Now, did you hear the, Ricky's recording before it went out? No. No, I, as a matter of fact, I, I didn't know Joe Osborne. And I knew of him because he was one of the wrecking crew. And so he, he called me at, at my office at Challenge Records. And, and he said, Jerry, I said, yeah, he said, Joe Osborne. I said, hey, man, great. I heard a lot about you. And he said, uh, Ricky just got your song. And I said, Ricky who? <laughs> he said, Rick Nelson. And I said, oh, great. And that's, so that's how it came about. And that thing took off and sold like, you know, it was the, the first music video ever for the purpose of promoting your, your product, right? And because Ozzy, Took it in and superimposed a bunch of Ricky and, and a Polynesian baby, you know, and getting, for an expression, laid, you know, putting a layer around his uh, neck, and then, and, and then it showed his scenes of Mexico and things like that. And, and so that, and, and they played it at the end of Ozzy and Harriet. Every show, they play the song. And you talk about promotion, unbelievable. This is a network show. And uh, so that I, that I just, I admired. I said, that, that little tube that I'm looking at is, is amazing. It's the best tool there is. <laughs> and so it, it went, sold like six million. Is that uh, James Burton playing the guitar on yeah. Traveling Man? Yep, sure is. Yeah, that's James. Played on... I think all but one of, of the major hits, and then by that time, Glenn had taken over and, oh, okay. and took James's place. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about some of the lyrics of that song. You said you were sitting in the car with a with a map, with a ro- world atlas. Okay, uh, you know, so just and and I didn't know the terms, uh, uh, Wahini, you know. So I said Polynesian baby. And it, and it sang well, you know, and, and uh, uh, my sweet Fraulein, you know, down in Berlin town. That almost, that almost screwed up the whole thing. Rick and, uh, and Ozzy got into a little fight because of the way the Berlin was, it's Berlin, it's not Berlin, right? But it, it didn't sing right to go... Oh my, oh my sweet Fraulein, down in Ber, Ber, Berlin town. No, 
down in Berlin town, sang better. And, uh, and Ozzy said, no, you can't, you can't have that. It's a, it's a, it's so he'd take it out of the stack. And then Joe, Osmond, would go put it back in the stack. You know, until finally uh, Ricky won out. And, and he was Ricky then for, for Traveling Man. And from that point on, he was Rick. Because he turned 21. Mm. And he had an album called Rick is 21. And, and Rick is 21. Right? And he never was known by Ricky anymore. Here's more of stories behind the songs. Next is Mark Stein, and he tells a great story about how he met Michael Jackson and lured him into the studio to sing backup on the song Save Me. We were recording a record in L.A. at a Hollywood Sound, and I was on a break, and I went out to the lobby, and Michael Jackson was, there he was, man, he was hanging out by the soda machine, <laughs> and he was down the hall in another studio, he was doing a project with his brothers, the Jacksons. So this was right after Off the Wall was like a multi-platinum record just before Thriller, and he was still having an amazing success as a solo star, superstar. And we had a track called Save Me on this record we were doing. It It was like inspired by some of the grooves on the Off the Wall album. So I said, Michael, you know, I introduced myself. I said, dude, why don't you come in? Check this track out, you know? And <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> so... He walks in the studio, we shut the door, and I had the engineer put the track up, you know, and Michael starts snapping his fingers and starts dancing around the console, man. He was so into it. And I said, Michael, go in the studio, man. There's a live mic out there. Put the phones on and why don't you scat on this? Why don't you sing with us on this? So he, lo and behold, he, he goes out, puts the earphones on, they put the track up, and he starts singing and scatting. In one take, and we're sitting there with our mouths open, and I'm looking at the engineer. His name was Ed Zacker. I remember that. I said, Ed, can you believe what is going on here? <laughs> That's Michael Jackson singing on this track with us, man. And it was incredible. One take, he comes in, and we're listening back. We're all, it was just a night for the ages. Everybody's smiling. I thanked him. He says, okay, I got to go now. <laughs> and he left. And it was just like numb. I mean, it was like, holy moly. So, you know, I, I had, had, I said, make me a cassette of this. I got to go. It was about two o'clock in the morning. I, me and Patty ran over to Jim Krieger's house, the late, great Jim Krieger, who wrote that song and played guitar with, with Dave. And he also wrote We Just Disagree, a huge hit. I, know, I woke him up about three o'clock in the morning, 2.30, banging on his door. What, what do you want, man? He said, open up. I said, you're not going to believe this. You know, I walked in. I said, put this on. Put this cassette on. This is your song. You're not going to believe what just happened. So when he heard the story and he heard it, he was like so excited. And uh, again, that was like, what a night, man. That'll live with me forever. So it's a song called Save Me. Anybody can Google Save Me by, by, uh, by Dave Mason. You hear Michael Jackson, you hear Mark Stein singing. I was doing my Michael McDonald back and vocal sound at the time. That was a really cool studio thing everybody was after back then. And it's really a cool track. And I played some really cool Hammond on it. So uh, there's another experience. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so I really hope you enjoyed that segment. Next, we have Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary fame 
talking about Puff the Magic Dragon and answering that burning question that we all have about Puff. On our first album, we sang a, a children's song. It's rain, rain, raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring, bumped his head. That's no risk for us. That's a song we wanted to sing. And sing tarry day, sing autumn to May. We went to the second album and we wanted to do some children's songs. And I had written Puff the Magic Dragon in 1959 with Lenny Lipton. And I'd been singing it as a solo, so we recorded it. But for the, for the record, for those of you who have drunk the Kool-Aid, no, it's not about drugs. It never was. There was no risk in that regard, nor would there ever be. In 1959, when I wrote it at Cornell University with Lenny Lipton, there, grass had not reached <laughs> the East Coast. So I couldn't, we didn't have the data. Later, if, you, if I'd done it six months later, maybe it could have been a song about a dragon with a subtext about grass. But it, 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 there, there was no risk involved. So now that we've had the burning puff question answered, I want to give away a little secret. If you go back and watch Peter's interview, at the very end, he had his guitar with him and he played a little folk song and he had Dan and I sing with him. And so if you listen very carefully, you might get to hear Dan sing. Now, I was behind the camera and I was singing very low just for moral support. So hopefully you won't have to listen to me sing again. But it was kind of a fun, special moment. No doubt. Instead of Peter, Paul and Mary, it was Peter, Dan and Suzanne. In a hotel room in New York. <laughs> Good times. Great guy. Great stories. And, you know, that song was originally released in 1963. Peter, Paul and Mary, for those who um, need a little bit of introduction, really revolutionized modern folk music. And they really, along with the Kingston Trio and Bob Dylan and a few others, really put that genre back on the map for Americans in the early 60s. And they had a string of hits. Um, one of our favorites, of course, is uh, If I Had a Hammer, Early Morning Rain, Leaving on a Jet Plane, by the way, was written by a young John Denver. Um, and I just, I, I've always admired their career because um, as, as you could tell in that interview and other segments uh, from his NAM Oral History interview, Peter Yarrow, along with Mary and Paul, really wanted to sing songs that expressed something that was meaningful, you know, about the movement, about the civil rights, about uh, the war in Vietnam. I mean, they were really, really active in that with their music, and I think it really did make a big difference. The next one is going to be about Gail Davies, the song Bucket to the South, and a short bit about someone's looking, how Gail came up with the songs. Awesome. Let's hear Gail Davies. Yes, let's. So Bucket to the South is a very important song for me. It was written about my family. I was driving down from L.A. to San Antonio, Texas to meet my uh, birth father, who was, with the, it was a, with the United States Air Force. He was a sergeant in the Air Force, and he had another family. And as I was riding along, I was singing, I'm taking my bucket, the car, down to the South, going to fill it up with memories, bring it on back. And it was, strangely enough, recorded by a girl named Ava Barber. And 
they uh, called my publisher and said, we'd like to change uh, Oklahoma to Tennessee. And I thought, wow, because she's from Tennessee. And I said, well, okay. It doesn't rhyme, but okay. And then they called back and said, she wants to change the names of all your relatives to hers. And I said, no, no. If she wants a song about her family, she'd have to write it herself. So they ended up recording the song. And when I got the record, I was so disappointed. They'd cut out the entire last verse, which was really important because it says... My dad was quite a guitar man, picking with his country band. He trifled with a woman. Lord, it broke my mama's heart. Lawrence Welk would not let his artist sing trifled, because to him that was a dirty word. And he wouldn't let her sing about a man leaving his wife, cheating on his wife. Well, that's what the song was about. So by the time I got it, uh, the, the record, it had been reduced to a little radio ditty. Take my bucket down to the south. You know, I mean, they took all the guts and life out of it and, and changed the words and cut out the last verse. So I wasn't pleased. So I re-recorded it. And it's a song that I do in all my shows. It's my big showstopper because I get to really break it down and talk to people about it. That's neat. Yeah. Is there a story behind uh, someone's looking... Yes, there is. I was sitting in L.A. My boyfriend at the time was a guy named Rick Tassin. He was a drummer, and uh, we, we grew up in the same town, Bremerton, Washington, Port Orchard area, across the bay from Seattle. And uh, he, we'd had a big argument, and he had left me and gone back to Seattle. So I'm sitting alone in my apartment in L.A. and feeling sorry for myself. And I just came to me, you know, why are you feeling sorry for yourself? Because somewhere, you know... There's someone looking for someone like you. And that became the, imp the, um, you know, the inspiration for the song. All right, that was the great Gail Davies, who was interviewed during the NAMM show in Nashville a couple years back as we continue the Music History Project podcast dedicated to the stories behind the songs as told by the songwriters. And she had many, many great stories to tell, but I'm glad we included at least those two. Um, just a fabulous person who, on many people's account, was the very first female record producer in Nashville, which is a neat and interesting side note. So, Alex, tell us what our final segment of this podcast is going to be today. The final segment is about Trevor Rabin. He's a member of uh, the band Yes, and uh, he talks about how he composed Owner of a Lonely Heart. And he also is a very accomplished film music composer. And uh, we actually let the interview run a little bit longer so we can hear how what he's thinking about composing film music and uh, the difference between his songwriting. And uh, he has some very interesting aspects about that to talk about. Yeah, absolutely, Alex. I really appreciate that lead-in because this is a great song. We all know this tune, and now we're going to hear it a lot differently after we hear this story. You know, with songwriting, for some reason, uh, I had a friend in South Africa, and... Uh, dare I say it, we used to smoke a joint at 15 years old and go up into the hills. He was 17 and we used to just sit there with two acoustics and write. I don't, I don't smoke any grass, haven't for about 20 years. Just not because I think there's anything wrong with it, it just doesn't appeal to me anymore so I don't do it. But um, yeah, we used to write songs and I got the feeling about it, it was just during the Beatles coming out and uh, that's where the passion for writing came out. Um, and uh, so I've always kind of, always, from 15 onwards, I've always kind of 
written. And one thing I realized is no rules. And you can't really teach, teach it. Now, as far as orchestration, there's certainly, you can equip yourself to do, as far as writing, you can certainly equip yourself with a lot of the uh, rules and regulations and the formal analysis and um, uh, the procedures, um, how to write score and charts and, and stuff. And that's, and that's a help with that. But if you're just writing a song, for example, Own of a Lonely Heart is a, a, a good example. Um, I just came up with a riff. I, dun, 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 and that sat in my brain for quite some time. And I, I don't know, is it too simple? Is it maybe just so simple that it's really ordinary? Or is it something? I didn't know. And then I started slowly putting things around it, and then one visit to the bathroom was quite a lengthy one. I was playing it, and I wrote the chorus, the lyrics, everything about it I wrote. And uh, it started coming together, and then I thought, okay, this is ready to do. And at the time, it was four-track. Um, I mean, we were working on 24-track, 48-track machines, um, even so far as digital uh, tape recorders, uh, dash systems were just coming out. But uh, I had a four-track uh, unit, so I used to record um, track, three tracks, and then mix them to the fourth track. And then use that mixed track, and then two more, and mix that to, to the track, and just loop them over like that, so I could do 12, 15, 20 overdubs. They would hiss a lot, because it was analog. Um, but it worked. One of the consequences on owner of doing that is some of the bangs, you know, the brass hits and that, I had mixed too loud for the mix. And I got used to it, so when we did the final record, um, I wanted those also to be too loud. So on the record, those things are too loud also. Um, and that kind of helped. But yeah, writing can be a real different procedure. I mean, a film like um, Remember the Titans, um, it, it just, you know, the picture told the story and uh, the script. Uh, you, when I'm doing a film, I get the script, I read the script, and I start visualizing, musically visualizing, okay, this character needs this kind of it, and uh, there can be a, an adaption, a variation on that theme for, for that situation, etc., etc. And uh, then I do what's called, what I, I, I call an unders, underscore, which is uh, overture, uh, underscore, <laughs> so to speak. And I put all those various themes together and present them to, to, the, to the director with full orchestration. The reason I do that is that one of the unfortunate things about film scoring these days is, and for quite some time now, is every time you get a film, there's a temp score attached to the film. And invariably, the director has now become somewhat attached to the temp score. So, but now he's got his composer. Now it's time to get the music done. And uh, very often you'll get, you'll write something that you're really happy with, you play it back and, let me hear it one more time. And you play it again and, let me hear the uh, temp score. And then you roll your eyes and, so it's a good idea, because they're so drawn to the temp score by that chance, you've got to overcome that. And that's why doing this, what I call underscore, uh, uh, overture, an underture, 
is a useful thing because then they get used to that and it becomes more um, more significant and more acceptable and um, it's always worked very well and uh, you know but then the, I, sometimes I start film I start writing at the end uh, because the bigger version of the theme possibly um, is the biggest way it's going to be done and then you can work back and use it in smaller ways and build it up to the end um, so, so if there's no rules. I mean, sometimes I start at the beginning, sometimes at the end, um, and it depends. There's a film I did, The Banger Sisters, which was uh, very small um, and uh, very small. And I, there were two sticks I used for the percussion at one point. It was just sticks and I think banjo, and there was no very little orchestra on it. But then you'll get a film like um, Armageddon, where uh, Jerry Brockheimer was the producer and he came to me and said, I said, well, what kind of, what are you looking for for the big theme when the, when both um, uh, space shuttles take off to go and save the world? I want the world theme. And it was a great brief. It was like, that's, that kind of tells me a lot. And so <clears throat> with that, I went and wrote this theme. And I was very happy because I turned around to see if they liked it because Michael Bay was the director. And as I turned around, they were giving each other high fives. So I thought, okay, that one's nailed. <laughs> um, and then it's, once again, uh, you know, it's different to songwriting. The other avenue is if you're writing songs for records. It's, it's a more time-consuming thing. You've got the lyrics to consider. And I hate writing lyrics just for lyrics' sake. And lyrics take me long, a long time. Um, I also, I always want to think, what am I saying? What is this about? Is there actually a message in this? You know, I'm much quicker at writing film. That's why score was great for me. Um, because the film told the story and I, and the music helped there. Um, with song, you've got to be telling the story, doing the whole thing. But it always usually starts, there's only one or two songs, um, where there's a song called, I Miss You Now. And that's on my, um, uh, an album called um, Can't Look Away. And uh, that, those, the lyric was written first on that. But mostly I write music first and then the lyrics come after. But it's always a new experience. You know, as I say, Owner went that way. Different songs go different ways. It's, it's very, very, you never know what's going to happen. The, the terrifying thing with film is there's so much to do and you've got a pretty truncated amount of time to do it in. So, but every morning you're, you're set there with a, basically a blank page and you've got to fill that page with music, so, so to speak. Um, and then after doing 10, 15 films where I'd done four or five number one films and got a bit of a reputation, then it's, oh, well, let's get Trevor Rabin to do it. And, and uh, then there's an expectation. Oh, yeah, we loved what you did there. And I said, I have no clue how that came about. <laughs> it came to me. I don't know where it came from, but it came. And uh, but then you you do get disciplined, and you 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 work out. Okay, I'm here to write, and you write. And there's a real discipline about it. And I think that's one of the most useful things that's happened to me with writing, is uh, getting down and just writing. I've got nothing to say. Write. Um, and I think. I think there's a lot of composers, um, old classical composers, whose job, they get down, they 10 o'clock in the morning, they have lunch, and they go back at 5, 
they leave. But every day they would write. That was their job. Uh, whereas with rock and roll, it's like, you know, I know the Rolling Stones. They say, oh, I got this riff, and then six months later, let's re-look at that riff, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it's not as bad as that, but uh, songwriting's a little more, a little more forgiving th than score. All right, that was the great story about how a big hit record was actually written on the toilet. I love that. And uh, it was how, how great of Trevor to open up and be honest about that, because that's a great little ditty and uh, a little bit of tidbit that's fun to, to know. Um, interestingly enough, it is now that song, um, Owner of a Lonely Heart, is on their greatest hits album. And it's what most people think of when you think of the band, yes, because that's the song short enough for a prog rock band, you know, to make it to the radio in the top 40 all the time. But did you know that that was actually on their 11th album? I mean, it took a long time for them to have what we call a commercial hit because that's not what the band is about, right? That band was about longer playing songs and being musically more creative and letting things kind of jam a little bit. So I just think that that is a great story to tell and how nice of him to share that with us. I really also enjoyed how he explained how he composes for film music and Titan Spirit. Yes. What an amazing, iconic piece of music. I would even th say that's an anthem, right? I mean, we hear it at the Olympics, uh, Obama's inauguration. I mean, what a great, amazing tune that is. Coming from the same guy who gave us all those great songs and, and the band, yes. So thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to our next podcast in about a month. And until then, stay well. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino. Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.